0: For people who have not been in LA and spent time in LA, we don't interact the way that folks do in New York City. I mean, you're in New York, you gotta learn to deal with people because you're in front of people. In LA, it's a car culture. And all I know about you is how you drive.
1: Hello, and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the Prizes program here at the Journalism School with my colleague, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to be hearing today.
2: Well, we host a documentary series at the J School. It's called Film Fridays. We screen award-winning documentaries, and then we have the filmmakers come afterwards and speak about it in front of our audience, the students, and people from the community.
1: Yeah, and we were so honored recently, apparently, I missed it, but you were there, um, to have John Ridley, Oscar-award-winning writer John Ridley, with us as a guest, um, he was the screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave, and he's done a lot of other incredible fictional work on TV shows like American Crime. Um, but this film that we watched at the school was his first documentary film, right?
2: Yeah, it's his first, and actually, he was sort of talking a little bit afterwards about it, it might be his last. I think That's he's funny. more comfortable in the fiction world, but you know, I think he, it was a kind of an amazing opportunity for him. It's called Let It Fall. And it goes back a deep dive into the context and the history of the events that led up to the Rodney King beating and then the riots that followed in Los Angeles back in 1992. So they went out and tracked down this incredible array of witnesses. Um, I'm sure people who have talked to reporters in the past, but people, some people who had never talked um, and really heard personal stories and saw it from so many different angles. It's just a, a pastiche that builds up and to sort of a crescendo.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, in addition, of course, they have just a stunning archival assortment in the film um, that has a cinematic quality, I would say. And yeah. yeah, the incredible archive helps that.
2: It's also the product of a veteran journalist. There was this sort of interesting partnership between John and... Our own ABC News senior executive producer, Jean Marie Condon, someone we've both known for Yes,
1: a former colleague decades. And, and friend, yep.
2: Uh, she produced, She's the producer on this film, and um, I think it's the first film that ABC News has done that aired both on the network and then was theatrically or maybe first theatrically released, so we might see it up for an Oscar. Hmm.
1: Professor June Cross spoke with Jean and John Um, And at one point in the evening we also heard from Fatima Curry, another producer of Let It Fall, who was in the audience that night.
2: So let's dive right in to an edited version of their conversation.
3: Let It Fall is your first documentary?
0: Yes. Yes, it is.
3: Talk about what it was like, how it was different doing a documentary as opposed to working with a piece of history, or for a story for which you can write what everyone says?
0: Working in this space, the real difference is a factual integrity. With a a film, uh, as much as we want to get it right, as much as we want to honor people and honor certain narratives, the reality is when you write a feature or work on something that is in a, a theater in the narrative sense, Um, There are spaces where you may condense story or conflate characters or there is a bit of creative license. I I hope that we all try to get towards some truth. But if you're going to a a movie theater and a narrative for real history, you know, I think we all know we're going to the wrong place. We hope that it inspires people to go off and read more, to learn more, to engage more. That's a different thing. Um, With... This project, working with individuals like Jean Marie, like Fatima Curry, one of our producers, who, among our many producers, did an amazing job. And we do want to talk about this, and we hope that you'll maybe speak a little bit on it, about going to neighborhoods, going to people, sitting down with them, taking the time to let them know that we are not trying to do a piece that is about our opinion. Unfortunately, not everything could make it into a film that even is two hours and 25 minutes. So I don't want to pretend there aren't decisions that are made, that aren't um, choices that are made, but the primary choice is to try to get to some truth. And I want to say something. I'm not trying to politicize or or get on a soapbox, but I guess in a way I am. You know, we're, we're reaching a place where there is such an intense degradation, in all sense of the words, of that desire to get towards some kind of a truth. And we can't pretend that every piece of journalism is is trying to get towards the truth or that the history of journalism is absolutely pure, but um, there was a time when we had a respect for what people were trying to do in going out and tell these stories. So for me, to see daily people working towards that, working towards um, a truth in some cases, multiple truths, because it is all down to perspective. But when you offer up a space for people to have those perspectives, I think we get more towards the truth than a universal sense of pain, loss, suffering. It's a truth,
3: but you do take a point of view. It's very clearly told from the point of view of the black residents of South Central LA. I mean, even though you give the police officers their say, it's hard to escape.
0: I would say very honestly, uh, you know, it's from people of color in South Central. It's from people who call her in uniform. It's from uh, Asian Americans. Some who are in South Central, some like the Tashima family who are just LA residents. You know, Rodney King was not pulled over or beaten in South Central Los Angeles. Karen Tashima was shot and killed in Westwood. This community in in all of our communities are are huge, but for people who have not been in LA and spent time in LA, it is big. And we don't interact the way that folks do in New York City. I mean, you're in New York, you got to learn to deal with people because you're in front of people. In L.A., it's a car culture, yes. and all I know about you is how you drive. South Central L.A. was disproportionately affected by all of these, all of these things that happen. But I do think what gives it a power is that there are so many narratives that we believe we're given equal weight and equal measure because until we understand this cascade, this domino effect, again, why... Why is Rodney King being beaten, savagely beaten, in the Foothill area of Los Angeles? Why is that blowback felt by other individuals in this other area? We've got to understand all of these spaces. The
3: interconnectedness
0: of all of this. In, in yeah. my opinion.
3: Gene marie really, I want to pull you into this. Yeah, um, I was going to
4: comment on the guy who wrote 12 Years a Slave doing this. I thought 12 Years a Slave was a brilliant script, and I loved American crime and so I begged to be allowed to write to John and see if he would tell this story. And uh, I didn't know that John had been researching a screenplay on this for years. Yeah, so so a simple Google search, search would have yielded yes. that. <laughs> so Malia and I had our first call yeah. with John and we got off the phone and I said, well, he knows more about this than we do. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool, that's good. Um, and uh, I think one of the reasons why it felt right to have John take this on is because his work is so clearly grounded in trying to get beyond the headlines and inside stories that really happen. And the the probably coolest thing was to know that you had researched this stuff for so long and these people, and these people had sort of lived in your head for 10 years because you asked about them the very first time we spoke and to see John come and sit down opposite these people, these people who he'd been living with like ghosts, I think, mm-hmm. and and get to talk to them, and ask them all these questions that filmmakers don't usually get to ask you know, their characters. And um, it was very moving. I have to say, it was very moving, and and, and you wept a couple of times, actually, well, after it. It,
0: it. To be, you know, we were, this far away from these individuals and they're sharing these stories that for them it was not 25 years ago what they're talking about. For almost every one of these individuals, they really are talking about things that happened yesterday um, for them or that they will carry with them for many years to come.
2: So this next bit needs a little clarification because you're going to hear now from one of the other producers of Let It Fall who is in the audience for the screening. Her name is Um. Fatima Curry. And she's talking here about Terry White, the prosecutor in the Rodden King beating trial, who she had to convince to go on camera. And up until that point, he had planned on taking his story to the grave.
3: The prosecutor, basically, uh, we met him for lunch. We spoke about his story and he said, you know what, I understand, you know, you're interested in doing this documentary with me, but I'm really not interested in being on camera. He says, I've told my daughter in detail this story, and that's where it's going to lie. And I said, well, what about my daughter? I have two daughters in New York that's not familiar with this story in LA. Uh, Why wouldn't you share this with my children? And at that point, he said, hmm, I think you you, you have something here. And uh, we continued to talk, and he said, actually, my wife told me to come to this lunch meeting. And I said, well, I need your li- wife's number. From there, that's exactly what I did. I used a wife card, and I, you know, I said, listen, you know, I need to get your husband out here uh, to tell this story for us, and it was done.
4: And his wife is one of the heroes of the story, really, behind the scenes, because she really felt it was important that he tell this story. She really passionately felt it was important. She came to the interview. John,
3: how did you prepare for these interviews?
0: I was very fortunate in that I, I, to a degree, I had 10 years to prepare to tell this story. So 10 years ago, a little bit more than 10 years ago, but approximately 10 years ago, Spike Lee, who I've had the opportunity to work with, and he's obviously just an influence as a storyteller, uh, he called me and he really wanted to tell a narrative feature about the L.A. uprising. And I had been in LA at the time of the uprising and there were things that I remembered from obviously being there and and what was on the news and and so forth. Um, And we started working on this story and it became clear to me very early on that this story was much more than about one night or one incident or one demographic and it was about time and space and communities and how we interact and our perceptions and the things that we are trained to believe. You know, that was one of the things in here, just hearing these officers so sure, what an individual on PCP, how they acted, and yet then they would turn around and say, well, I've never actually arrested anyone like that before. I mean,
3: and none of their victims have ever had PCP? And,
0: and, and not <laughs> had it in them. Yeah. So, but, but these cultures that arise, um, those were the things that I wanted to study and understand more. But I don't think, for me, and again, the group of people that we, I had the opportunity to work with, do these kinds of things on a regular basis. I, nothing really prepared me to sit this close to individuals, um, moment after moment, uh, day after day, and almost every one of these stories, the emotion, the feeling, were very raw. That's do what you we really actually want to
3: ask you, because you're. A, a hard newswoman, and certainly in documentary, there's a trend now towards more cinematic storytelling. Um, so my question was going to be, as a as a news person, what did you learn about storytelling from John?
4: Well, I you know I have always been a fighter for narrative unfolding of things, and I had the protection of Peter Jennings for many many years. I wrote and directed documentaries with him and he gave me the space to experiment with that. And I think that that was really why I wanted to work with John because I really um, I really believe that there, there does have to be uh, a union of narrative storytelling technique with journalism in order to get people to not just hear and and receive here, but feel uh, the stories you're trying to tell. I feel like we uh, we have like the second oldest profession, right? <laughs> and there's a reason for it, and it is to pass along crucial information and and to uh, provoke people to think about their values and talk about their values. And uh, it, when you separate the storytelling from the truth telling you've lost everybody. And I think that for many, years... What do you many, mean by that, years, separating
3: the truth-telling from the story? I think that for
4: many, many years in the business, I began to feel frustrated because I began to feel that scripted work did a better job of getting at the truth than, than our industry was doing. And I. It, it was the commercial end of our industry. And I, I, I think that that was because uh, there, was a, there was a fork, right? You either did really serious stuff and it was on the evening news, or you did like sort of stuff that wasn't as important but it was entertaining. And I think with the sort of golden age of documentary that that we're in now, um, and with people like John being interested in entering into you know sort of changing the craft, I think the whole industry is the better for it I mean there's been a lot of uh, science on it now about you know the way uh, to uh, get somebody to pay attention to the plight of another person uh, is to get them to empathize through story right I mean there was a there was a great article in the New Yorker I read once and the the uh, the writer said it turns out uh, there's a very tiny hole in our brains through which you can uh, gain empathy for another person and the hole is story shaped and you got to like shoot through the hole and I just I've just wanted to work with people who believed that that is how you can also do something that is also serious journalism where you also uh, do do what we do as a matter of course as, as journalists so I, that, I think it's it's really important that we're doing this Spike Lee has done some uh, documentary film also there's a few People that were lucky have entered into it because it, it it then it it will lift the the entire uh, everyone right. I think. Mm-hmm.
0: One thing that I think is is very important to point out is that this was this was true journalism. You know, even though I think there's some cinematic aspects of it. You know, this is these folks told the story because they felt they should tell the story. You know, we we did not go out and buy into these stories, pay for these stories. Um, this was. Uh, good old-fashioned individuals sitting down with folks and 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 making them feel as though this is a space Mm -hmm. where you should tell that story and that is very different sometimes than what we do in hollywood where it's about acquiring stories um, and and getting them and, and paying for them and that that's part of the process because also there's money coming out on the other end, but the mechanism, the only mechanism here that these producers worked with was a sense of human connection. The number of individuals who were involved in making these phone calls and reaching out and representing communities, whether they were police officers or whatever, to say, look, this is not us. You know, trying to get you because you are of a background or demographic, and we need a straw person. Did go. you just
3: make a list and start going down the list and start calling uh-huh. everybody? How did you find it? I guess that's a big. How do you figure out who those we, folks we are? Had, okay. we had John's catalog of who the who
4: some of the major players okay. were in his head from all the years he studied it. We had the okay. book, and we literally, if you want to know the journalism of it. We pulled LA Times and other articles from every one of the major events that John identified. Our first conversation, John identified what he thought the turns were. And he said, I want to be able to only interview people who can say at some point or another, and then I did this, right. or then I didn't do this. They are the people, and you said, maybe they're not in the center of the frame, but they're off to the side, they're just outside the frame, but they were there. And they, the, something they did or didn't do had an impact you know history is made in moments when human beings with the full weight of their personal and community's history behind them are under pressure and they have to decide to do something and it is of those small deci- individual decisions that, that 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 we call history right mm-hmm. and so we had to find who were those people and so we we had a lot of newspaper articles and Malia, who's our, our she's in Charlottesville right now, but she did, did this okay. with us. <laughs> um, you know, she literally made a list where she mm-hmm. cross-referenced the people from the articles, people who were showing up in the archival footage who literally were to the side of the frame. Right. And, um, and we, we made this list and we set about trying to find them. And sometimes it was hard. Remember the finding Ms. Williams thing? We couldn't find, couldn't find, couldn't find. I went to. Couldn't find Fatima. who? I'm sorry. Ms. Williams. Oh. Okay. I, I I went into Fatima one day. I said I read an article. It said that Damien was sitting on the porch with a neighbor who was his mother's friend, when the crowd ran by and he stood up and he got and they, he was talking about going to college and he stood up and he got off the porch. Mm-hmm. I said to her, I think if you can find that woman, that neighbor, you'll be able to find her. So she goes off for like a week, right? She comes like, Oh, you were right. I found her. <laughs> So it was really luck, some of it, right? Just like, it always what is, if we, like, throwing darts, like, yeah. what if we just tried to find that woman? Uh, so that's that's really what it was. I wanted to, you know, you asked me what I learned from John, and besides the the thing about the patience to unfold the story, which was a big, it was the space to do that, right? Because most of our bosses would not let us, our job is also give us the space and say, no, no, he knows what he's doing. This is,
3: <laughs> Get but, to the point. <laughs> Why he, am I watching this? Well, he did right? it, right. <laughs> Talk about the narrative drive of the film. So why do you start with the story of
0: James Mincy? What we wanted to do is, look, I think there's an argument that this, we have a a 10-year window that we're looking at. You you could go back 15, 25, 35 years. But in terms of what we wanted to put in front of people and in terms of um, a capacity to tell this story, for me, going into this, I felt as though with the James Mincy story, one of the last individuals who was a, a victim, a fatal victim of this chokehold technique um, and the introduction of the PR24, the metal baton, um, there was a space in a time where you're looking at not only 10 years but very specific events, obelisks on a timeline where you could say, one could say, This event led to this event, led to this event, led to this event. So when we looked at the story, it just looked like there was a moment from 1982 to 1992 where one could say, Mm -hmm. now we're seeing these events play out Mm -hmm. and with um, an escalating rapidity.
3: Do you really believe that it was LAPD policy that led to, I mean like really was there no other choice they had but to beat somebody? You, I'm just asking out of curiosity. Do care. I
0: believe that? Yeah. I, I will say this, that to me, the flaw in the narrative of we had no choice but to beat this person. There are individuals who say, well, if we had the chokehold, we could have applied that and it would have been over in 10 seconds or so. Where or I have find fault with that narrative is these individuals say, well, we had to, to beat Rodney King because we had no other way to subdue him. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where they talk about the swarm technique and... One of the things you don't see, there were about at least 25 officers there, 25 officers. So in some configuration, Rodney King, even if he's a sizable individual, he's outnumbered. Now I understand that it's not that easy to go in and swarm, but they're saying that we couldn't do that because he was so big and so strong and he posed a danger. Mm -hmm. However, if we had the chokehold, we could subdue him, but you still have to get in physical contact with someone to apply that chokehold. So if what you're saying is he was too big to swarm, but he's not so big that we couldn't get behind him and use this bar arm, and that bar arm is essentially one person around the neck, it, it makes no sense to me that you could get in and choke a guy and do it effectively, but I couldn't get a leg, and you couldn't get a leg, and we couldn't do that. You've got to be in physical proximity. So that's where, for me, mm-hmm. you know, if I was prosecuting this in a cosmic court... Which you did. Which Well, Again, I I, I say this separate from the film. It was not our intention to to go there and say that, but if you ask me, and you did, I would say, well, that, that makes no sense. It's still about physical proximity.
3: You talked about the polarization that we're all facing as a society, and I sort of want to end, I guess, on this note. Do you see a way forward? Does this film give you any thought of a way forward to get beyond where we are now, or... Are we stuck here
4: well I hope that we're starting to see not just through this film but I think we can see it around us that uh, if the system fails one group of people it's gonna ultimately fail everybody because nobody got justice in this story nobody right and um, and I think I think the way forward is for us to understand that <laughs> for, and us to tell stories that help people, I mean, for our part in it, right, <laughs> is to tell stories that help people see why that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's a good answer, but as a journalist, that's what I'd like to say. <laughs> so. John? I would John? say
0: this is, as people do, we remain inquisitive uh, about others, and one of the things that is, for me, very, frightening is that we, you know, look back in the day, uh, the New York Times hit your doorstep, and that was basically the only opportunity you had to get whatever the news of the day is, or Walter Cronkite, or Peter Jennings, or um, whomever. Um, there is a greater capacity to go out and verify things, or get perspectives than ever before, and despite that, we do less of it. Um, there are any number of reasons why we collectively find ourselves in the space that we're in. I. I I, with this film, as difficult as it is, there are people, when systems fall, they will rise. And we have to recognize that and embrace that. Um, I believe that we can get to a better place. I have to believe it, because I got kids. You know, um, I think we can do it. It's being active and always being vigilant. It's not gonna be easy. There's always gonna be things that divide us. We're always gonna have things that we have to get over. But what I take away from this film is there are people out there who will put their lives on the line to make this a better, safer place because that's the right thing to do. And if we try to do that, if if there were a piece of art or film or news or documentary that was gonna change the world, somebody who's far more adept at it than me would've done it by now. (laughs) But I think that encouragement, that encouragement that there were individuals who despite everything that may have been against them or despite what they were told to do, they chose to do better. Now it seems like every day You click on the news, you look at the world. Right. It's just pain. So to be reminded that there are people who are willing to do better, it doesn't just have to be them, it can be you. Do better.
3: That sounds like a good good piece of advice for journalists. John Ridley and Jean Marie Condon,
0: thank you so much. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you so much. Deeply appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Thanks again to filmmakers John Ridley and Jean Marie Condon. I have to say, I know that you couldn't make it that night, but I was in the room and uh, it really felt incredibly special.
1: Yeah, I was sorry to have missed it, but happy that I can hear the conversation on this very podcast. Lisa, you recommended this film to us on the last episode we did.
2: That's right. We recommend, each one of us usually, something that we found especially interesting or compelling in the last week. Do you have something for us today? I do.
1: I think we both are going to talk about other podcasts. (laughs) Perish the thought. Um, I have been enjoying a podcast called Note to Self from WMYC from host Manush Zamarodi, um, who talks about the effects of technology on our lives. And as I listen on my smartphone, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the the effects, the bad effects, or both bad and good? I mean, there's some bad in there for sure. it is. It kind of takes you out of your smartphone-focused life for a moment to think a little bit analytically, with some context about what's happening in real time to our lives, our relationships, how we work, how we spend free time, um, and it's useful too. Some useful, a useful way of processing all that's happening. Um, it's entertaining too. Hmm. So I recommend it.
2: Well, WNYC is. Going to get two nods from us this week because I was going to recommend Stay Tuned with Preet Bharara. Love that guy. Um, So Preet Bharara, for those of you who don't know, is a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District, which is basically Manhattan. And, uh, you know, has this great backstory. I mean, I don't want to say that his backstory is that he was fired by Donald Trump because he has decades of work in the public service and, you know, has been a crusader for so long. But um, he tells on the first episode, he tells this great behind the scenes story of what it was like to get dumped by Trump. And
1: um, Riveting. It's uh, entertaining.
2: Yeah. And then he has all these great sort of inside guests, people that he knows, people that he can pick up the phone and call. I will give a plug to an episode from last week that you alerted me to, which was uh, my friend John Miller, who appeared to tell his story about interviewing Osama bin Laden and... uh, John Gotti, who I've heard these stories before. I've heard them a few times, but I'm so glad that he was telling them publicly to Preet's audience. And Preet talks about how he needs voice training. I just want to say right now, he has a mellifluous voice. I wouldn't do a thing.
1: He's a natural. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Miriam Sitz with the assistance of our special programs coordinator, Millie Christie Dervaux and our DuPont fellows, Katie Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and visit us at
2: onassignmentpodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of On Assignment, now coming to you on Fridays. Until then...